fun-filled uh, and exciting episode of the Fusion Underground. As always, I'm your host, Manuel Ramirez, and I'm joined in the virtual studio by none other than my good friend and brother, Jason Moret. How are you doing here? I'm good, brother. I'm good. Good to see you. Likewise, likewise. Um, you know, I've got all kinds of craziness happening over here on my on my dual monitors and all this crazy crap and uh <laughs> dr skynet <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> but we're actually this is season two episode season two episode two so season two episode two <clears throat> excuse me of the fusion underground and here at the fusion underground what we try to do is we try to make sense of the world by having principled discussions about such topics as entertainment, current events, politics, and culture. Our mission is to educate people to become critical thinkers so they can live more empowered and happier lives. And today, we're gonna start getting into all of this today with a, uh, a little thing about uh, the three branches of government. So yes, you know we're, we're going into the height of the election season where we're going to be picking two of the three branches of government. Um, and, and so I thought, well, why not? Let's start there and let's talk about that. Let's have a principled discussion about what the three branches of government are, what they should be, uh, at least through our principles and values. Maybe we can talk a little bit about uh, how statists slash collectivists slash socialists, communists, leftists, whatever you want to call them, tend to view the different branches of our government, maybe. We'll get into that a little bit as well. Um, so I hope, I hope you're prepared. No, you don't ever tell me what we're going <laughs> to be talking about. You don't let me get prepared. You like to see me flounder. And uh, yeah, so I appreciate that. I was like, I was just sitting here thinking, three branches. We do have three, right? One, two. Yeah, yeah. I think there's three. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah so but before we do that before we kind of get into this i've got a couple little things that i wanted to share with you actually um that i think will right. be uh kind of fun um but before we jump into all of this there's this video game and just there's a little clip here that i wanted to play for you and for our listeners are you i don't know if you're familiar with a game called rocket league Rocket League, it's available on PC, it's available on Xbox, um, PlayStation. I think it's even available on the Wii, if I'm not mistaken. But essentially what this is, is it's, you drive a little car, it's three-on-three three battles, okay? And you're in this little car, and you pick up these little power-ups, 
and they basically give you rocket fuel. And so you can, you can uh, launch your car high up into the air and think of, think of it as cars meets soccer. It's three on three soccer, but with cars. Yeah. And these cars can go yeah, I way think up I've in the actually, air. And I've heard of it. Okay. Heard of it, right. seen screenshots, little bits of it, but never played it. So. Okay. I have played it. I do own it on the, on the, on the PC. It's very, very difficult to play. But there are a number of pro teams that play these games. Um, there are a number of tournaments. For, in my opinion, it's one of the more exciting types of esports that's available that you can watch because the games are relatively short. Each, each period is only a couple of minutes long. I think it's like three minutes or four minutes, something like that. Um, and it goes really, really fast. And it's actually pretty exciting. But uh, what I found, yeah, you're familiar with the Spanish commentators for soccer, right? Where they get all crazy. Uh, like, oh, yeah. You know, that yeah. kind of stuff, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. okay. So, so <laughs> we, have, we have, there are commentators that call the games for Rocket League as well as for other types of esports. But, um, but there are some Spanish commentators. And I want you to check this out because this is absolutely insane. Adelante, vamos a ver cómo sigue la remetida de Vodafone Giants frente a la portería de Renault Vitality, ¿sí o no? Pues efectivamente, Mocho, todo el mundo con el chat We Are Giants, hashtag We Are Giants para darle todo nuestro apoyo al conjunto español que necesita un gol ahora como agua de mayo. Vamos a ver el toque por parte de Zamue. El lanzamiento por parte de Zamue. Le pasa a Marafa, le va a caer a Tox. Tox que lo vuelve a invitar. ¡No, por dentro! ¡Eso se cuela! Giants que pone el empate en el marcador, chavales. Esto es lo que hacéis poniendo eso en el chat. Esto es lo que hacéis dando el apoyo. Podafone Giants sigue vivo. I don't know what he says, but he talks so damn fast, especially right when they're when they're gonna they're right in front of the goal, and the dude just loses it and just starts going off. That is just it reminds me of Speedy uh, Gonzalez from Saturday Morning oh, Cartoons. Bugs Bunny. Oh my gosh. You're gonna get a new ringtone. That's what I'm gonna do. It's just gonna be some guy going. Oh my god, that is so funny. That is that is just so funny. My gosh. Um, okay. Whew. So, um, are you familiar with the stuff that HBO has done lately with Gone with the Wind? I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. So there's 
so HBO the has the streaming Donald service. Trump is not allowed on there anymore because uh, it's racist. Well, yeah, exactly. So HBO Max, a couple of, uh, when was this? This was back in June. So uh, just a couple months ago, two months really, um, HBO Max, they suspended Gone with the Wind because of its quote unquote racial undertones. Um, because it deals with topics such as slavery, et cetera. Um, and what's interesting is this, this uh, Amanda Marcotte, she published this article off of salon.com on June 11th of this year. And what's interesting is this opening, this opening paragraph that she has. Let me read it to you. It says, on Tuesday, the new streaming service, HBO Max, temporarily suspended offering Gone with the Wind, the 1939 Civil War-themed film that is simultaneously both a classic Hollywood movie and a rancid, regressive work that celebrates slavery, glorifies treason, and, for good measure, romanticizes rape. The, I just watched Gone with the Wind not too long ago. I, I, I just can't believe she even wrote that sentence. Anyway, the temporary withdrawal came after a Los Angeles Times op-ed by John Ridley, the, Oscars, the Oscar-winning screenwriter of 12 Years a Slave, described Gone with the Wind as depicting a bloody insurrection to maintain the right to own, sell, and buy human beings, and perpetuating some of the most painful stereotypes of people, uh, stereotypes of people of color. Well, what's interesting is while she was writing this, um, where was it here? She actually goes on to say that, um, that nobody wants to, the left isn't trying to cancel Blazing Saddles. In fact, that's the name, that's the title of the, of the article itself. It says, no, the title of the article is, no, the left isn't canceling Blazing Saddles, but the right wants you to believe that. Liberals aren't censoring Blazing Saddles, Friends, or Seinfeld. Why are right-wing snowflakes freaking out? Okay, so she wrote this in July. Well, it just so happens, um, it just so happens that this past week on August 13th, HBO Max decided to add proper social context intro to Blazing Saddles. This disclaimer is similar to the <laughs> one the streamer added before Gone with the Wind. Blazing Saddles is currently streaming on HBO Max along with a new introduction that automatically plays before the Mel Brooks, Mel Brooks classic begins. It is unclear exactly when the intro was added to the 74 comedy classic starring the late Cleavon Little and the late Gene Wilder, but it was sometime after the film premiered on the streaming service in July. So in other words, the left, members of the left freaked out and said, no, 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 nobody's trying to censor Blazing Saddles. And then here we are, two months later, there's a disclaimer at the beginning of Blazing Saddles. Now, mind you, it's a three minute disclaimer. It is a three minute disclaimer where we have to sit, sit and listen to some blowhard explain all of the different characters and provide the proper context around what Blazing Saddles is. Talk about a complete and total buzzkill. Oh, absolutely. But <clears throat> if, uh, if it were any shorter than three minutes, um, you might actually be able to overlook that. So they're going to make it overwhelmingly obvious. Matter of fact, I thought I heard that they were doing an animated movie, which was a take or remake of Blazing Saddles. Did you hear that? I have not heard that. Uh, yeah. So um, let's see if I remember correctly. There's a dog who is uh, assigned to go be the sheriff of this town and is 
the town is completely run by cats. Oh, wait, 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 wait. So, this does sound familiar. Yeah, yeah, this does sound familiar. Yeah. It was, and it, there was, no, it's not a, it's not a Blazing Saddles remake, but it's a absolute 100% um, <laughs> exact plot line and storyline. Even, I guess, some, some uh, dialogue was almost taken directly from Blazing Saddles. So that should be interesting. I wonder if they're going to have to make the same three-minute disclaimer in that, saying that, uh, you know, any uh, likeness or, um, comparison from dogs to any other race is purely accidental and should not be taken literally, etc. Blah 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 blah. But we'll see. Yeah. Richard Pryor must be spinning in his grave. Uh, you know, he was he was one of the main writers oh. on Blazing Saddles. So right, right. Actually, pretty much all of um, the sheriff's <laughs> dialogue was written exclusively by Richard Pryor. Um, yeah. And Mel Brooks had to actually create the rest of the dialogue around it, which was kind of part, <clears throat> partly why he wanted that done. He wanted that um, unique perspective. Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, we're getting into this area of in, in our culture, in the, our stupid timeline that we're locked into, that people are just being absolutely ridiculous. <clears throat> and of course, it's bleeding in over into just mindless entertainment. We can't have, we can't have things that are just fun anymore, you know. And uh, you know, any Mel Brooks movie, he insults people. You know, Mel Brooks insults people of of all races, creeds, religious attitudes, sexual orientation, etc. That's who Mel Brooks is. It's just funny, you know. What n nobody. I don't, I think the, I don't believe that the vast majority of people in America find that disgraceful, find blazing saddles disgraceful. I think the vast majority of people in America find these, these talking down to, I mean, who are these people that are setting up, deciding that we need to have a disclaimer in front of blazing saddles because, because the, we are too obtuse to put two and two together or we're, we are too dense to understand that this is a comedy and it's okay to laugh at ourselves and it's okay to laugh at other people as well. well and there, there used to be a point where comedy was kind of um, sacred in that regard, where comedy was excluded from that. Comedy was, it was understood, even all the way back to the time of the court gestures who were actually coming in and making fun of the actual ruling king or queen in the royal family. There was a protection for comedy to exist um, in that escape from uh, the governing bodies, from the, the uh, movements at play. Now, that's not, it's not sacred or protected anymore. Well, I think it's just going to get worse. Uh, I think it's just going to get worse. We continue oh, to yeah. see this, I think, in a variety of different ways, not only with film from, coming out of Hollywood, we're, we're continuing to see it in spaces such as comic books and video games where you have these censoring of different voices or the watering down of different ideas in order to make them palatable for the vast majority of people, most of whom don't want to participate in these form, this form of entertainment anyway. Uh, and so we have people that are catering to this crazy ideology 
Uh, and uh, quite frankly, I just find it disturbing and I find it quite disgusting. But it's, it's overwhelmingly disgusting. We're, we're losing any sense of free expression in ourselves. And <laughs> it's, it's sad. Um, and it's not even for the sake of being um, offensive. It's for the sake of, of possibly being misconstrued or construed by a, a minority group, regardless of what that is. And I, I say minority purely by numbers, not by makeup. If there's a possibility that 1% of a viewing audience could take something you may imply, not even say, in a manner which you did not intend it, um, then it needs to be canceled and redone. And, and it's, it's like, where, where does this end? And I think that's kind of what we're not willing to look at right now is that this doesn't end. It only, and the more we um, acquiesce to this kind of thinking, this, kind, this uh, mentality, this, new, this culture that's actually the, the further away from any kind of grasp on our own culture we're going to have because this isn't going to stop. So there's, a, there's another thing that I wanted to talk about really quick before we dive into our main topic. And that is, <clears throat> I don't know if you've heard about the, the um, well, the railing on social media that's happening in, in and around the United States Postal Service. Have you heard about that over the last couple of days? No. no? Okay. So, um, so this, this is starting to become very redonkulous. And I wanted to talk about it because I think the way that it's being portrayed is extremely dangerous. And I think most people, well, I think there are some people, probably about a good half of the population of the United States do not know how to read an article to recognize the inherent bias and the problem that our beloved media um, <clears throat> presents stories like this. So this is all in the US Postal Service and there's a there's a big uproar, especially among the left, because the United States Postal Service has come out and asked for twenty five billion dollars with a B, twenty five billion dollars, because they want to have additional money so that they can manage mail in voting across the country. <clears throat> As you know, there's a big push especially by people on the left who are pushing for mail-in voting. And so the United States Postal Service, which is, poor, which is a poorly run entity, has been for a very long time, bleeds money, is completely inefficient. Um, they're seeing this as an opportunity to grab some extra cash. And so they've approached the federal government for $25 billion. And Trump, President Trump basically said, no, I'm not gonna give you $25 billion. And of course, what the left has done now is they have been tearing of garments, gnashing of teeth, you know, uh, rending their own hair over his response. Right. And here's, a, here's an article from Grace Panetta from Business Insider. And the title of the article reads, Trump admits he's refusing to fund the U.S. Postal Service to sabotage mail-in voting. That entire title, the entire alone, is just redonkulous. <laughs> okay. This, this article, okay. right. this article is not intended 
to inform the public about what is happening. It is entirely created to shape your opinion about what is happening. The first two words alone, yeah. Trump admits. Trump admits. <clears throat> yeah. Essentially what she's saying, Grace is saying here, is Trump is admitting to trying to sabotage the Postal Service. And that's not exactly what happened. Let me, let me read you some of this article. It says, President Donald Trump told Fox Business's Maria Baratoro, Bartiromo, I don't know how to pronounce her name, on Thursday morning that he would block additional funding and election assistance for the U.S. Postal Service to sabotage mail-in voting. Dun, 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 dun. Can't sabotage it. Throughout the pandemic, Trump has rejected giving emergency funds or grants to the cash-strapped USPS, which has seen a major revenue shortfall. No shit, you reckon? I mean, well, first of all, they've had a terrible <laughs> revenue shortfall, mainly because they don't know how to manage themselves out of a wet paper bag, and they are completely no, run gone, in a very inefficient way. They've been at risk of bankruptcy for years and years and years. Yeah, and, this is nothing new. They even had to get rid of their planes because they couldn't manage that. And matter of fact, fun fact, that's part of the reason why your check bag fees went up on all airlines. Do you know why? Because the United States Postal Service has mail on those, and it costs them money otherwise. And the and the airlines they pay or they they get paid, excuse me, to actually haul mail for the postal service. They can't manage their own shit. And I'm sorry, but I I oppose giving my tax dollars to the United States Postal Service for doing a piss poor job. I'm not going to give you more money because you can't manage what you've already got. Um, right. That's why most people don't ship packages with them anymore. They go to FedEx or UPS for everything. Sorry, soapbox off. Yeah, so the article goes on and continues. <clears throat> he, Trump, has also aggressively spread false and exaggerated claims that voting by mail is inherently fraudulent. Well, there's a lot of opportunity for fraud in, in mail-in voting mail-in ballots, but that's neither here nor there. That's a different topic, but hold on. In reality, rates of fraud are extremely low. Oh, really? There's plenty of documented evidence on the contrary. And there's no evidence, goes on the article, that expanding voting by mail hurts or benefits either political party. No, it doesn't hurt or benefit either political party. It does hurt or benefit particular races that are happening in an election. <clears throat> For those of you who do not remember, allow me to refresh your minds when uh, several years ago, Al Franken was running for Senate and he was actually be behind on election day and they were finding boxes and boxes and boxes of mail-in ballots in the back of people's trunks in their cars. Oh, look, here's a bunch of new ballots. And wouldn't you know it, they're all for Al Franken. <sighs> anyway. So the article goes on, Grace goes on. Trump said in a press conference on Wednesday evening that he would not sign off on either the $25 billion in emergency funds for the USPS or the $3.5 billion in election assistance to help states that Democrats have advocated in a federal COVID-19 relief bill. Now, here's something that I need somebody to explain to me. <clears throat> and I'm gonna stop here and we can rip this part uh, so far. What I don't understand, the states actually run the election. The federal government does not run the federal election for president. Correct. Okay? 
all of the states run that. So the states, when they put on, when they have approved mail-in voting, states pay, they prepay for the postage on all of the parcels, on all of the ballots that go to people's homes. So now, lo and behold, so now we have this, this situation where if you're in a state like Arizona, we do have mail-in ballots. The state has already prepaid, prepaid, given money in advance to the United States Postal Service for all of these ballots. They have prepaid for it. And now here comes the USPS basically going up to Uncle Sugar saying, please give us $25 billion so that we can process all of this mail. You've already been paid for it. So I'm with President Trump here. Why on earth would we go out and give them, give the states and give the United States Postal Service $25 billion? Keep in mind that mail-in votes, that mail-in ballots account for approximately 0.02% of all parcels processed by the post office in a single year. That's a, a fraction of the amount of parcels that they process every year. And they want $25 billion. This is nothing more than a cash grab by the United States Postal Service. Agreed. Now you can sit here and tell me that you're going to need, you know, 350,000 additional workers to try and process ballots? No, you don't. No, you don't. I'm sorry. Um, you know what? There's more mail, more additional mail that goes through the United States Postal Service starting on Black Friday than any other time in any year and any other year throughout or in a 10-year cycle. Do you know what that is? Do you know what happens on Black Friday that floods the post office? Oh, all of the mailers and all of that crap? Are you talking? Nope. Nope. I'm talking about letters to Santa Claus. Santa. That's yeah. right. Yes. I'm serious. The little kids. And, and you think about this. How many friends do you know that have little kids that actually write letters to Santa and put them in the mail? You might know of a couple, but probably not many. The point is, of all the people you know, just those couple, that actually adds up to 10 times the amount of mail-in ballots ever seen. And you know what? Even the post office, they throw those away. That's about what your mail-in ballot counts for anyway. But even if it actually mattered, which it doesn't, you don't need $25 billion. The fact of the matter is the federal government with a lot of other entities who have been struggling for a long time are looking at COVID-19 as a revitalization of their financial plunder. I mean, I called, I called the cable company today and I got told the reason for my excessive wait time was due to the COVID-19 or coronavirus pandemic. You know what? BS. They were crap before. They're going to be crap tomorrow. They were crap today. That doesn't matter. It's become a catch-all excuse to try and get more money, to do less work than they were already doing, and to try and make me not get pissed off over it. 
and it's happening everywhere. Don't sit here and tell me that the mail-in ballots are going to overwhelm the post office. I'm sorry, the United States Postal Service was overwhelmed with the, you know, 30,000 people that actually still use snail mail out there. I'm sorry to say, they are a failing business model and always and have been for a long time. Now, here's what the president actually did say. This, this is what he actually said, and this is in the article. Quote, they want, they, USPS, they want 25 billion, billion for the post office. Now they need that money in order to have the post office work so it can take all of these millions and millions of ballots, Trump said. Now in the meantime, they aren't getting there. By the way, those are just two items. But if they don't get those two items, that means you can't have universal mail-in voting because they're not equipped. Trump did not admit that he's sabotaging anything. What he just said right there is he described the situation. The United States Postal Service is a shitty run organization and they want $25 billion. But here's where it gets, here's where this article really goes off the rails. And this is where I think it's absolutely just, um, just stupid. This is where it gets really, really stupid, okay? Um, so Amber McReynolds, the former director of the Denver Elections Division and the CEO of the National Vote at Home Institute, told Insider in April that when properly funded, the USPS is a remarkably effective tool for administering mail-in elections. Quote, they have the ability with their equipment and everything to run it at a level that, mo that most of us would never expect. It's massive. McReynolds said. When put into perspective, she said the number of ballots the Postal Service processes is just a blip on the radar. That's absolutely correct. Quote, she goes on, the Postal Service estimates they, they process about 140 billion pieces of mail a year. And when we talk about 250 mail, million mail-in ballots, mail ballots for say every American, that's only 0.2% of their normal volume. She said, oh, I was mistaken. I said 0 0.02, it's actually 0.2%. Either way, it's a blip, it's negligible, it's entirely redonkulous. And by the way, we're not talking 250 mail-in ballots. We're talking, in the last election, there were about 135 million total voters, ballots cast. So we're not even talking about 250 million the 135 million was literally everybody who went to the polls or who sent in a mail-in ballot. That was all the ballots totaled for the last presidential election. So we're not talking about 250 million. And if you think that you're going to mail out 250 mail-in ballots and you, and yet you have about on average 135 million Americans who vote, then you do have a problem with fraud uh, possibly taking place. So um, it, it's absolutely ridiculous. The part that I don't like about that article, which I just read, is they make it sound as if the United States Postal Service is actually processing the votes, processing the ballots. When they're, what they're really talking about is that they are processing the mail, not necessarily counting ballots. But here's another problem I have with this whole thing, right? You have the United States Postal Service who just came out and they endorsed President or um, for president, um, they endorsed Joe Biden for president. So now you have a group of people who have endorsed one side and that group of people are supposed to manage mail-in ballots. So there's a conflict of interest there. There's an absolute conflict of interest because they have a vested interest now in picking one particular side. And there's a video, I can find it. There's a video of a postal server, of a, of a postal worker just a couple of months ago during the primaries, 
throwing away Republican ballots or not Republican ballots, but all the Republic, there was a Republican, I think it was like in Michigan or something like that. She's caught on camera tossing boxes of um, mailed memorabilia from, from the, from the candidate, just tossing them into dumpsters because she didn't want voters to get the information. Uh, this is egregious. This is absolutely disgusting. And most Americans should be ashamed. But so many Americans think that this is a good idea and predominantly on the left. Go for it. Well, you and I were talking about the immense push to try and find a way to get the, the um, what we call the, the Democratic base energized to get out and show up to the polls to vote. And there's a problem with that right now. There's an overwhelming feeling that a lot of those, um, that voting base is not going to want to go to the polls. So there's an overwhelming push to provide them an easier means that they don't have to be motivated to get up and do it. And let's be honest, if you're not motivated to participate, um, you're not going to get out of your house. You're not going to go to the polling place. You're not going to stand in line and you're not going to cast a, a ballot for somebody or to somebody's that you're not excited about. But if that doesn't mean anything more than opening a piece of mail and checking a box and sticking it back in the mailbox, you might. So that's where the push is coming from. The fact that nobody, whether you are on the right or the left, it doesn't matter. If you know for a fact that the mail-in ballot process is overwhelmingly slighted and flawed, and you can, you can actually admit that, whether you agree with it or not, you can actually see the evidence of it, then you should be very concerned about your ballot, regardless of who you're voting for, that anybody out there can make that, um, that choice for you. That's a big problem. That is a big problem. And you know what, people are being really dumb right about now, right now, because there were people that, had, that took a picture of a bunch of old uh, mailboxes and they were all stacked up in a lot. And somebody started spreading the idea that this was President Trump rounding up post boxes, mailboxes, so that people would not be able to drop their ballots into the mailboxes. It turned out, it turned out, from the postmaster, the postmaster said, no, that's not what's happening. We're replacing them. They're old. We're going and we're replacing the old mailboxes. And what you saw were all of the old ones. We had to put them somewhere and somebody walked by the lot and took a picture. This is absolutely ridiculous. People are being absolutely, it's like people are so ginned up over this, over this election that their minds are just flying out of their skulls. Here's, here's, a, here's a video from CBS News. There are a group of protesters who um, today they marched on the postmaster general uh, on, on his home in Washington, DC. Look at this, there is, there is sound to this, but I've muted it because it really doesn't matter. But we've got you know, 50, 60, maybe 200 people here um, that you'll see over the course of this clip who have gathered outside and they're banging drums and they're, you know, they're making all kinds of racket and everything like this. And I want you to be, I want you to see these people because these are people that claim to be terrified. They're terrified to go to the polls on election day to vote. Why? Because of COVID. They don't want to be around anybody. 
but they're around their own group. This whole group of people have gotten together to go protest, not to get together in a group to go vote. So they cannot go vote in a group, but they're happy to go protest as a group. It makes zero sense. This is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Okay. Enough of that. It's just, yeah. it's just so infuriating. It's so infuriating. Okay. So let's, let's, uh, let's jump into our topic for the week. Why don't, why don't we? Okay. And let's so do that. Our, our topic here, the topic that we're going to talk about is the three branches of government. And I think this is, uh, this is an important, this is an important thing to, to mention because as I interact with people on social media, I continue to be surprised by the number of people who have no idea about how the government functions. Most people have zero idea how their government functions. Um, and so, and, and the reason why I wanted to do this is, look at this, this was from inauguration day on January, so January 21st, 2017. Look at, look at this reaction here. Donald J. Trump is now president of the United States. What a great honor to be able to introduce for the first time ever anywhere the 45th president of the United States of America, Donald She's going to have, she's going to give herself a brain aneurysm. I, 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 I mean, seriously. So there's, so there's, the, there's that woman, but look at this woman. This just, this just came out uh, this week. This is brand new from after Kamala Harris was announced as Biden's VP pick. Okay. <laughs> I just found out that Kamala is going to be the VP. Yeah. I'm losing it. Because I'm so freaking happy. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited. But apparently it's not. Yeah, you think you, you definitely need some help. Okay, if you react this way, if you react this way with this kind of, with tears, with this type of visceral emotion, you need help. This is not healthy, yeah. okay? And, and this is why I wanted to talk about the three forms of government because no, nobody, should feel they sh nobody should feel this overwhelmed simply because of a presidential election, okay? I get it, well, and I, I get it. You get behind a candidate and, you, and if your candidate loses, I get it, that kind of sucks. I've had candidates that have lost, it sucks. I move on with my life, I don't react this way, go ahead. Right. No, and, and I, I think we need to be, we need to, to be just grounded a little bit and recognize that while, while yes, we, we say that the, the president is uh, the most powerful man in, in the world, you know, that's the most powerful office in all of the land. He's a man. He's a person. And there are a lot of controls in place to keep that person in the purview of their job. 
um, which I think is kind of where we're probably going to touch into a little bit tonight. So I'm glad for that. But um, people who react this kind of way, whether it's uh, it doesn't matter who it's for, whether it's for, for for Trump. I know some people I've heard people say, oh, my gosh, I'm, I'm so overwhelmingly in love with him. I break down every time I hear him talk. That's not right. That's wrong. You are dangerously approaching um, worship. And that's not appropriate. You're, the, the, the president, the vice president, they're people to be respected, but they are people, human beings, no different than you or I, um, and respected for their position. But there's a very serious line, or at least that's part of my values and principles, is never to place anybody into a um, pedestal of worship other than one. Um, and that is my my God. Um, sorry, that's just the way I see it. I think you you get into very dangerous territory when you start blurring those lines. Right. And just a, just I think it was about a week or so ago, President Trump issued an executive order um, to basically cancel payroll taxes, and the Democrats lost their minds and people on the left lost their minds, okay? There were many people on the left that were screaming and crying, saying the president doesn't have control over the, over the purse strings that comes from the House of Representatives. And to a certain degree, those people are correct, okay? Now, I am not a, I am not a big fan of executive orders. I think of executive orders have their place but I do not agree with the vast majority of executive orders that are put forth. I don't necessarily agree with the executive order that Trump did in canceling payroll taxes. Just like I was not a fan of President Obama when he rewrote parts of the Affordable Care Act through executive order. Uh, so Obama did that as well. I, I don't agree with that. Um, but I want people to understand something that President Trump absolutely did have the power. He does have the power to cancel payroll taxes. Not just, not just President Trump, but any president does. And what, people, what most people do not understand is that, well, who gave him that power? Because that power is not vested in the Constitution. That, that power is not vested in the president based on the, the United States Constitution. So who gave him that power? Congress did. You know who wrote the bill? John Kasich. John Kasich and Bill Clinton was a big supporter of it, and he signed it into law that affect this bill uh, that affected 20, the 26 U.S. Code Part 7508, Section A. Uh, um, this, this rewrite of the law gives the president the power to modify taxes in the case of a taxpayer determined by the secretary to be affected by a federally declared disaster COVID-19 just happens to be one such disaster, the secretary may specify a period of up to one year that may be disregarded in determining under the internal revenue laws in respect of any tax liability of such taxpayer. Guess who the secretary works for? Secretary works for the executive branch. Guess what the executive order did? It told the secretary to uh, cancel payroll taxes. Congress gave the executive branch the power to do this back in 1997. 
This is one example of where Congress over several decades have continuous, continuously given over their power to the executive branch. You know what? If the, if the Congress had not, not been giving their power to the executive branch, whoever holds the office of the presidency, they don't get to do much, but they do get to do much. They do get to do a lot now because Congress has given the president the authority that Congress used to hold only unto themselves. We should not, you should not care. Ultimately, you should not care. Based on the United States Constitution, you should not care who the president is because as designed in the Constitution of the United States, the president has very little power, but Congress has given him or her its power for decades. Go ahead, you wanna say something. Um, well, a couple of things, and, and, and I know we've talked about other examples like this. I know I've talked about other examples like this in the past. This is not the first, um, the first time we've been hit with a situation where the president is acting in what would be the uh, purview of the Congress. However, that power has been deferred to him by a bill or rewrite of the law. But what I don't know, maybe you have some insight on this. Why has Congress repeatedly over the last 13 to 15 years decided that they just want to give this power over? Um, are they teachers at heart and they really don't want to work for their jobs but continue to get paid? I don't know. What theories do you have on that? Well, the, the theory that I have around it, I, I think everything, every different bill, every bill is going to be slightly different. But the, the theory that I have around that is, is this, and I think it's a simple one. It's the job of every politician once elected is to get reelected. That's, the, that's every politician's primary goal. Once elected, their, their, their primary goal becomes get reelected. That's their primary goal. And I believe that there are people ha who have gone to Congress and in order to get reelected, that means they have to bring money back to their districts or back to their states. They have to better their constituents. They have to make deals with other members of Congress or even the president himself or herself. It's been himself up until this point. Um, they have to make deals with the legislative and the executive branch to get stuff done. And so what they do is they create crazy bills that other politicians will say, oh, I like that. I will help you get that passed. And I think over time, it has been a slow erosion of authority going from Congress to the executive branch. Okay, I, I, I don't have any um, uh, opposing arguments, nor do I have any reason to believe. I've, it's, some, it's a quandary that I've um, asked myself. I don't understand where the motivation lies, um, but it's been a consistent problem for a lot of years. So I was curious if you had a thought on it. But. Well, and, and I, I think you also have to look at it this way too. I think there are many people who go to Congress and they look at the lay of the land and they're also planning on the future, a future Congress or a future presidential administration. And so they're, they're navigating or prepping for 
well, in the next administration, or maybe even for this particular administration, I want that administration to be able to do a little bit more than what could normally happen. Let's face it. Um, you know, one of the things, let me take a step back, because one of the things that really bothers me is people will say, people will say, you know what, Congress can't do anything. They can't get anything passed. You have to understand, if you don't know this by now, our system of government was explicitly designed to be extremely, for it to be extremely difficult to get anything accomplished. The only thing that Congress does is pass law. That's all they do. They create laws. That's why they're called the legislative branch. What I want people listening to understand is anytime a law is passed, that is a, that is a restriction on freedoms in this country because laws by definition tell us what we cannot do they may word them and say, well, this is what you can do, but, they, but then they'll specifically write them and say, you can only do these things, you can't do anything else. So you can either follow this really narrow path or they write the law that says you just can't do these other things. And so laws by definition in and of themselves are designed to restrict liberty. So our, our form of government is supposed to be extremely hard for any bill to get passed. So whenever I hear anybody tell me, anybody say out loud, well, our Congress can't get anything done, the natural response should be good. I'm glad they can't get anything done because imagine if they could get anything and everything they wanted done. Right, right. And, and um, I was actually explaining this to a friend of mine. If you look at our natural, quote unquote, um, freedom, the freedom to do whatever you want. It's almost the libertarian idea behind that. The only reason for laws to exist is to slowly chip away at what that is. I don't need to write out what freedoms you are entitled to as a citizen. We don't actually have that. What we do have is a set of stops on where you cannot go beyond, what the boundary lines of your conduct and behavior are towards your fellow citizenry, towards other institutions, and even our quote unquote bill of rights is actually a boundary line of the conduct and limitations on the government on us. It's not about, we have the right to kind of, if you take it from a standpoint or an origin of we have the right to do anything we want, then the laws come and put the regulations on that um, conduct from that point on. And, you know, the, the same exists within the offices, um, those, those boundary lines of conduct. In, you're, you're talking about the um, um, executive branch. Probably more than not has a lot more boundary lines on that office's conduct than almost anyone else's. The biggest, and this is what pisses me off about some of the, the pandemics and these, everybody says, well, I don't understand why we don't just declare a natural disaster or a national disaster or a national emergency state. And I say, whoa, time out. You don't really understand what happens once that declaration is made and adopted and accepted. 
Because once that happens, a lot, if not most, to all of the restrictions placed on the executive branch to do what is necessary are completely lifted. This is the one exception written into our Constitution that in a situation of national emergency, a, nas a national disaster, whatever that is, you are giving power, all of it, to one branch of the government to do as they see fit to, quote unquote, get us through this difficult and, and emergency period of time. And they're very limited on what that amount of time is. But the, the natural tendency for people to say, oh, we should just declare a national emergency and do X, Y, Z. I say, whoa, time out. That is and always was designed to be the very last straw, not the first reaction. Right. And, I, you know, the, the, the thing that people, I think, need to, be, need to understand, especially about the Constitution of the United States, the Constitution exists in, in two ways. One, we recognize that in order, to, in order to be governed as a country, the states had to give up a little bit of their authority. We had to give up a little bit to a federal government. Okay. But we also recognized that the rights of the states and the rights of the people are innumerable, which means you can't just you can't enumerate them. You can't just label out each and every single right because the founders said, no, there are innumerable rights for the people. And so technically the states have more rights than the federal government, but the people also have more rights than even the states. Okay. And that's a really important distinction because our constitution, even particularly the bill of rights, the bill of rights are actually restrictions on what the government can do to you. They're, they don't tell you what your rights are. And that's a very important distinction that I think people really need to understand. Even the Bill of Rights, they don't tell you what you can do. They tell you the restrictions of the federal government on what it can do to you. And that's very, very important. And most people overlook that concept. Agreed. Absolutely agree. Um, and, and, and I've talked about that over and over and over again on many different platforms to a lot of different people. Um, the Bill of Rights do not outline your rights. It outlines the restrictions of the government to infringe upon your right to live um, in a state of total freedom. So, so let's, let's break this down a little. I, saw, I think we've, we've been talking a little bit about, you know, the difference between Congress and the executive branch. And if you read the Constitution, you'll notice that, that um, essentially the, the Congress creates the laws, okay? Now, they're supposed to create laws that are constitutional, but that doesn't always happen. Um, in many cases, the Congress is either willfully, they willfully create laws that violate the Constitution, or they're creating something brand new that nobody really knows yet. But anyway, they get to create the law. The executive branch is really the head of state for
for other countries, okay? And so the executive branch deals more with foreign policy initially as outlined in the, United, in the constitution, but the executive branch is also the enforcer of the laws of, that Congress creates. And that's another important distinction. So for example, Congress can create laws about illegal immigration, but it is the purpose, it is the role of the executive branch, the president, to enforce those laws. So even if a president does not agree with those immigration laws, we should, the, the president still has an obligation to enforce those laws. Why? Because the people of the United States voted on the members of Congress specifically to go to Washington and create laws. And so by default, the laws that Congress creates are essentially the will of the people, okay? The will of the majority of people within across the country. And it's up to the, it's up to the president or it's the president's responsibility to enforce those laws. That is it. That is, the, that is really the purview of the executive branch. And, and then to top that off, right, the founders put in the, um, the judicial branch, which was simply to um, interpret the law to determine what is or what is not constitutional. Now, here's where I say that everybody in the country, everybody should be in favor of a very conservative Supreme Court. Why? Because if the, if the Supreme Court is extremely conservative, that means they go back to the letter of the Constitution, the letter of the law as stated in the Constitution, and they use the Constitution to guide everything. And the more conservative the Supreme Court is, the more they uphold individual liberties. Because I know in our culture, we tend to talk about minorities a lot, caring for minorities or making sure minority voices are heard. But the smallest minority is the individual because they are a minority of one. And so you want a very, very conservative court because they will ensure that the minority of one is upheld in most cases. Go for it. Yep. Um, no, I, I, I have said the same thing about the, um, the judicial branch, especially. Um, if you look at, I, I suppose the best way to try and make this make sense where there's no left or right leaning, conservative simply means the less, um, imposition of the government upon individual liberty. And if you as an individual want to live free, then you want the government to impose its will and decisions upon you in your daily dealings less. I mean, that it's, it's very simple if you look at it that way. So if you have a, a judicial branch um, and mainly the Supreme Court judges who rule that laws that infringe upon your freedoms are not in line with the Constitution, then more of your freedoms are protected in that regard. It's not about a Republican or a Democrat issue. If you really try and take that idea out of it and look at it, what the idea of conservative interpretation of the constitution versus a liberal in interpretation. So, 
and and I've we've we've talked about um, you know uh, illegal immigration a lot, and and it's a good example um, of where I think these these divisions get very very muddied, and some of the um, I believe angst out there is very misplaced. You know, everybody's was either very upset with um, um, President Trump's hard stance on quote unquote immigration or. Um, President Obama's very loose interpretation of that. However, it is not for the president to decide what the immigration law is. Correct. Nor is it his place to defend the laws that already exist. Essentially, he's, he's the sheriff. He's the chief of police. His job is to make sure that the law that is in place is being followed and enforced. That's the job. If you do not like the immigration laws as they are written, then you do not need to be writing hate mail to the president. You need to be writing hate mail to your congressman because the Congress is the one who can rewrite those laws, not the president or his cabinet or anybody in the executive branch. If he chooses not to enforce the laws on the books, he is in violation of the oath of his office. If he enforces it, it's not because he, he agrees or disagrees. Whatever the law is, it's the law of the land. His job is to make sure that it gets done. He is the chief executive officer or CEO of this, this country. That's his job. If you don't like the law that's in place, Congress needs to change it. So it really infuriates me when I see congressmen on the news networks pissing and moaning and complaining about a president, whoever it may be, about enforcing the laws that are on the books. If you don't like the laws, put a bill in to get it changed and get it done there. That's where it's supposed to be done. If it's constitutional, the judicial branch will ratify it. And the executive branch doesn't have any choice whether they like it or not. They have to follow the law, period. That's why it's set up that way. Well, and this is why when, when you know, we're, we're in the middle of a presidential campaign right now, or at least the national election, right? So we're going to be selecting the entire uh, House of Representatives and about a third of the senators, as well as the, the president and vice president of the United States. And it really bothers me. You know, we've gotten into this point where we have politicians and they're running about what they're going to do with regard to illegal immigration and what they're going to do for things like abortion, right? That tends to be a very sticky point, particularly with, with uh, the far people on the far right, as well as the far left. Uh, people are really concerned over the abortion or pro-life credentials of a particular candidate. The, the, the reality is, is none of that should, abs should actually matter at all. It shouldn't matter if a president is for or against abortion. It shouldn't matter if the president is for or against illegal immigration. What should matter is, is the president going to uphold the law? There, is, there are illegal immigration laws on the books. We have laws that govern the way people come into our country. It really bothered me during the Obama administration when President Obama said he was not going to enforce immigration law. What he basically said was, I don't care what laws are there. 
I don't care that it's my job to enforce the law. I'm just not going to enforce the law. It's like, that's not your job. Your job is to enforce the law as written. And what, what any presidential candidate should be saying is simply, send me to Washington because I'm the best person to represent the country to foreign leaders and I'm going to enforce the laws that are on the books, plain and simple. You know what? There already is a precedent for as decided by Roe v. Wade by the United States Supreme Court that essentially says abortion is legal across the land. You know what? It doesn't matter what any president says with regard to abortion. Somebody could run for president who is anti-abortion, doesn't like it, doesn't believe in it, doesn't support it. But if they're president of the United States, then they have an obligation to simply enforce the laws that exist. If, they, if that president doesn't like abortion, then they should work with Congress to get a bill passed that restricts abortion or makes it illegal. But guess what? Our country is designed so that it's very difficult to get things done. So if you're a pro-abortionist, if you're a pro-abort, then that should, that should sound like music to your ears. It shouldn't matter to you. As a leftist, as a communist, as a socialist, it shouldn't matter to you who the president is if the president is Donald Trump or some even far-right conservative president because the president's job is to enforce the law, not dictate law from the Oval Office. Agreed. And, and it's interesting to me, and, and I think you can probably um, commiserate with this, we have such a... Um, love affair relationship with the presidential election as it comes up. I mean, we're, we're talking about it now. The whole country's talking about it. The whole nation's riled up in it. Um, and yet I think for most Americans, they, they don't even know who their congressman is. Uh, they, they really don't, don't pay that much attention to the, um, to who their congressmen are. And really, if, if you were to actually look at the defined roles of the three branches of government, you should care a hell of a lot more about who's sitting in that branch of government rather than who's sitting in the Oval Office. Because when it yes. comes down to it, they should make 10 times over more difference to how you live your daily life than the president ever could. Yes, absolutely. It's, it should, if, if we actually followed the, what our constitution says, and if we stripped away the power that we've given to the executive that was not invested in the president from, or in the executive branch from the constitution, if, we, if Congress took its power back, then as voters, you would, you would be more concerned, as you should be, about who your senators are, about who your representative is, you should be more concerned about what is happening at your local level. The federal level shouldn't matter all that much because at the federal level, if, the, if Congress and the executive are following the constitution, there is very little that they could actually do to you. There is very little that they could actually impede on your life. You shouldn't really care who the president is. And we've, we're now in the situation where, like these two women that I showed earlier in the podcast, these women are freaking out, crying. One is, one is happy over Kamala Harris because she is so invested in winning back the White House, 
for for her left-leaning views as and the other one that was screaming just because president trump became uh was it was sworn into office you shouldn't feel that way that's a problem in our country the problem you should nobody nobody should feel this way over the president of the united states absolutely nobody should no no nobody should um and, and you know to a point I, th I think we've actually done this to ourselves you know we've we've propped one person up as the quote-unquote head of the country and and forgotten why the government was put in place to begin with and what their purpose was um so i challenge people out there to actually start looking at that and, and making some changes shoot if any congressman running out there here coming up wants to get my vote just go eh, we're going to pass a law or i'm going to put in place a law or a bill that is going to strip the president of all of the power that was never intended to be in the executive branch and give it back to the Congress. Okay, you got my vote. <laughs> but that'll never happen. That, that, yeah, sadly, that'll, that will never happen. You know, and, you know, I, I like to say this to a lot of people that, that most people are in fact conservative, they just don't know it. Um, because most people, when they live their lives, they live their lives in a very conservative way. And what I mean by conservative, I, I'm not talking about a Bible thumping American, the, the caricature of the conservative that you, that you hear about on NPR. I, I'm talking about being a conservative about how you spend your money and how you live your life. Most people, for example, they don't, uh, they, they don't, just welcome people into their homes off the street to have anything and welcome themselves to anything and everything inside their homes. Most people lock their doors at night. Now, people do live in small towns where they don't have to do that, but those people still care about their personal property. They still see their personal property as belonging to them. And, and, and so they don't get paid and go off and just give all of their money away to anybody that they meet on the street. But people still perform acts of charity and things like that. So all of those things are, are living a very conservative, um, conservative lifestyle. Most, I think most of the divide for people is we have people on the left and people on the right and really, we tend to agree on the same types of things, but where, where we disagree in is where we think the onus lies on solving the problems. So if you're a leftist, you tend to think that, well, the government should solve the problem. If you're on the right, you tend to think, well, no, government shouldn't solve the problem. It should really be left up to the people. And then the leftist hears that and says, well, we can't leave it up to the people because then it'll never get fixed. Um, and we, you know, for an example, if you look at just the, the amount of numbers of people who donate to charity or who work in charity, you often find that the vast majority of people who are volunteering their time and giving of money and so forth tend to be more right-leaning, whereas people on the left don't tend to do those types of charitable acts. They want the government to do those charitable acts on their behalf. Again, we tend to want the same things it's just the way we go about solving those problems is slightly different. Uh, and um, I contend that 
if you want the government to solve all of the problems, then what you really want is you don't want to be free. And that's okay. I just wish people would admit it. I, I, if you want the government to solve all the problems in, the, in your life, and you want the government to solve all the problems in the world, then what you're really saying to me, what I hear from you is you just want to live in tyranny. You just want the government to do everything for you. You want the government to control your life. You want the government to make all those, all those statements and make all those decisions for you. And, and what you're telling me is it's too hard to live as a free person. That's what you're telling me. Because if you want the government to have the power to solve all those problems, then guess what? You have to give the government a hell of a lot of power to solve those problems. Right. And, and I've seen this a lot, um, even in the, the, the charity idea that you brought up before. Um, you know, we've, everybody's come across somebody who's asking for a dollar at a stoplight. Um, you know, <laughs> I think everybody wants to help people in need. Overall, I th regardless whether you're um, left, right, Republican, Democrat, we want to help. We don't like that situation being there. We all want to be charitable at heart. Where the disparaging um, I, conflict always seems to come in is, again, I if I want to give someone a dollar and say, here, go get a cheeseburger, which I don't even think you can get for a dollar anymore, but it doesn't matter. Here's a dollar. I don't have a problem with that. I can do that. Here's a buck. Where I have a big problem is when the government steps in and tells me that I must pay whoever is standing at whatever stoplight every time I stop must pay a dollar. Otherwise I can be cited for that. That's a problem. And I, we've talked about this before and I think you're right. The, the, everybody says, well, the, the government needs to solve um, for the homeless or the, the, the people begging on the street. Well, what do you mean solve for it? You mean give them money? Well, yeah, the government's got money. No, that's my money. You're just taking it from me so I don't have it to give on my own and you're reappropriating it. That's not the government with this endless pile of money. You're taking my money. You're telling me as a taxpayer what I must pay for. That's where I have the big issue. But then again, I am more conservative minded in that sense. I don't have any problem giving to charity. I don't have any problem having, uh, helping somebody up in a time of need. But that's because it's my choice to do. Um, if I see somebody, I, I stopped alongside the road to help somebody out um, when they were stuck just the other day because I wanted to because they needed help. And I was in a place where I could do that. When it becomes an obligation because I have to and you tell me I must, now I resent that. I don't want to have to do that. Um, what if I'm not able to do that at that particular time? There's, there's. And to actually try and force people into that box, you, you're going to create animosity and resentment for people who actually do need help. And the government stepping in to quote unquote fix it for you, that's just reappropriation of all the resources and funds that you've already given up. So it's not the government it, it, um, stepping in to help. It's the government taking over um, yet one more small aspect of your individual liberties. That's not an answer. Right, and for people that, that continue to think, well, I still want the government to have increased power and control, 
imagine if the government were to come to you and use the pandemic as a perfect example. We have the left for the last three and a half years, the left has screamed over and over again that Trump is a dictator. You've heard it, I've heard it countless times that the left has said Trump is a dictator. He's acting like a dictator. He's a tyrant. He's a dictator, dictator, dictator. And then COVID-19 hit. Right, right, right. And those exact same people, they said, Trump's not doing enough to deal with the pandemic. So (laughs) is he or is he not a dictator? Before COVID-19, all y'all said that he was a dictator. Then COVID-19 hit. And now you want him to be a dictator. You, you can't have it both ways. We saw this with Portland. People kept saying President Trump's not doing enough to deal with the civil unrest in places like Portland. Then Antifa and BLM, Black Lives Matter, said, we're going to burn the federal courthouse down. And President Trump said, oh, hell no, you're not. And what did he do? He sent in federal agents to protect the courthouse. That's all they did. They, they were inside the courthouse and they would come out when they would get close. They would just stay right along the perimeter of the courthouse. They didn't venture out into Portland. And all of those rioters, they picked a fight with the, with the feds. And then once they picked a fight with the feds and the feds were defending themselves and defending the courthouse, what did all the leftists say? President Trump is acting like a dictator. Look at him. So you, you wanted him to do something about it. And then when he shows up with his federal agents to do something about it, you cry wolf. You can't have it both ways. And what you have to understand if you're a person on the left is what happens. Yes, you can, you can call for increased government control over your life. But what happens when somebody goes into power who doesn't believe what you believe. And now you've given them all the power in the world. You've given them all the authority over your life. You've given them all that power because it was perfectly okay when your guy was in the off, was in the Oval Office. It was perfectly okay when your guys were in control of Congress. All of a sudden, after a couple of years, it switches. And now a different ideology is in control. And what's the first thing that happens? you scream on inauguration day with tears of rage and fear and all of that because you've given over, you've given the power of your lives over to government. So stop it, stop it. Don't allow it to happen. And just recognize that, you know what? Some problems, they're going to be very difficult to solve. And it's probably best if you don't look to government to solve your problems. Yep. Especially, well, and, you know, I heard somebody say, well, the president needs to um, step in and just shut everything down, shut down the schools, shut down all of the schools, all the local, this, shut down these businesses. I said, you recognize that the president doesn't have the power or authority to do that, right? And she looked at me like I just slapped her in the face. I said, the president doesn't have the power or authority to do that. The governor's do that's the local that is your state and your local government that has the power to do that not the president he can't come in and do that the the states still are um sovereign in that regard 
So you're barking up the wrong tree. I mean, you want to get upset about that, march down to City Hall and start talking to your city councilman and throw a fit with them because that's where that's going to start, not anywhere else. You've got to start local first. Um, and, yeah, if you want to give power over, I'm, I'm sorry, but you're not going to like what you get in the end. I, I just brought up the the homeless situation. That That's a problem everywhere. No matter how big or small your town or, or city is, there are homeless people where you're at. I guarantee it. Um, you, maybe you don't see them. Well, good for you. But, you know, if you want the government to step in, what's what's going to happen when they say, well, okay, if there's a homeless person outside your house and they knock on your door, you have to let them in. You have to feed them. You have to shelter them. You have to give them clothes from your closet because that's our answer. In order for us to solve for the homeless problem, then there's no more homeless. They get to live with you. You have. And, um, yeah. So there you go. Now you have a new roommate. Are you going to like that? No, probably not. But that's an answer, and that's a that's an easy way for government to solve for that problem. I don't think that's going to last. I don't think you're going to like that. But it's a matter of where you want to surrender your individual freedoms and to whom. And do you trust a man or a woman who you don't know to make those decisions for your home, and I mean your house, your family, your income, your means to garner said income, your education if you're a student, you're, you're giving an awful lot of control of your life over to somebody that you don't know from Adam. So be, I would caution you, unless that appeals to you and you want no responsibility over your life and you want to be told what to do every day. If you are accepting of that and that's how you want to live, then that is your choice. But as a system of government for me and my family, I don't want that. And I would caution you to really think about if that's something you're ready to accept. I, I think a majority, I think there are a lot of people in this world who do want to live uh, in a dictatorship. I, I honestly do. I honestly believe that. Uh, when you look at the history of mankind, the history of humanity is rooted in oppression. It's rooted in dictatorial rule. It's rooted in a single sovereign having control and power and authority over everybody's lives. That is the history of humanity. This thing called freedom is a very new thing in the history of, of mankind. And, and I think the majority of people are absolutely afraid to be free. I think most people would rather live in a dictatorship. Now, I don't think most people, at least in America, understand what that truly means. I think most people in America have a very utopian view of what living under a dictatorship actually would look like, right? They, they look at it and say, well, the government is going to give me food and the government is going to ensure that I have a roof over my head and the government is going to make sure that I have electricity and I have internet and I have all of that. What, you, what people don't recognize is that no, the government will not be able to ensure that you have all of those things. We see that in communist countries today. We saw it in the Soviet Union. 
when you have to give a product or service to everybody, you don't get to pick and choose a difference between a Samsung and an Apple. You get whatever the government says you get. And when the government is making it, then the government's going to make it at the lowest common denominator because they have to mass produce it. And they're going to have to make trade-offs and you're not going to have nice things. You're going to have things that break down. It was the history of communism. Communism was rife with that. The, all of the vehicles could, I mean, yeah, they had cars, but most of the cars were always breaking down because nobody knew how to fix them because they killed all the people who didn't know how to fix them and they didn't know how to upkeep right. them. And the government couldn't maintain all of the uh, different supply chains to get food to people. There was mass, there's been mass starvation everywhere communism has been tried. But people in this country say, well, I would rather have somebody make all of the hard decisions in my life for me so I don't have to worry about where my next paycheck is coming from or where my next meal is coming from. Because living in freedom is difficult. It's hard. And most people, most people don't want it. And most leftists in this country, they don't want it. They want to be taken care of. They have these utopian views of being taken care of. And most young people, well, they don't know any better. And all they're, all they're romanticized over is the fact that they get to you know, live free and party and hang out and do art and just follow their dreams while the government, while Uncle Sugar comes in and takes care of them. Well, guess what? You got another thing coming. Because if you want to live under dictatorial rule, go live in dictatorial rule. Yeah, and I, I think our our citizenry, at least as Americans, we we have so many things that we take for absolute granted and because we've never had to experience a day in the life without it. I mean, we've got electricity that turns on when we flip a switch, water that runs the minute we turn the valve, um, plumbing that is just, it just always works. Things like you... You look at, at communist countries throughout history and they don't have these things. They have to fight over water and food. And it's not because the government says, well, we're not going to give you any. It's just, well, you know what? We just don't have the means to get it out there to you this week. You're just going to have to figure it out. It's coming. Your ration is coming. I, I saw a, a picture um, of a lady and this is a little disturbing, so I apologize for the imagery, but I, I don't think people now really appreciate where people were pushed to during um, communism in the Soviet Union. She has a cart, and she is selling in a marketplace. She's completely emaciated, um, as is most of the people in this photo who are standing around her cart, um, and she has a sign that says, Meat for Sale. And she is selling off chopped up human body parts because that's what they've been reduced to. There is no food. There is nothing of substance besides what is left of people who have died of starvation. And she is now trying to do something to survive and to make an ends meet. And I got news for you. That is not a dramatized version of what it is. That is real. That happened. Try, if you can, to imagine putting yourself in a place where you are pushed so far beyond what you can conceive as being possible for you as a human being. To 
where you are now capable of selling human body parts for food or going to go purchase human body parts to feed you and your family because that's where you're at. That is the state of the situation that you're in. That's real. Um, and I also, I, I saw an article actually comparing this call for communism um, almost to the, uh, uh, the very first Avengers movie where Loki is in Germany and he's speaking to the crowd and he's telling them to kneel. And he says, isn't this your most comfortable state as a species? You cry, you, you cry out for subjugation to someone to lead and dictate your lives. Um, because you're filled with the chaos of trying and the struggle and strife to try and get ahead in your day to day. And I think people don't understand what being told is going to look like. Even the, the young people who are buying into this right now, they're coming, <coughs> excuse me, out of their homes where their mother and father have provided for them all these years and told them where to go when they have to be back, what their curfew is, and live, for the most part, carefree, as long as they obey the rules, gone into college and done the exact same. They've had a professors and dean and syllabus that's gone and directed them every step of the way. And for the most part, they've been provided for. What I'm telling you is the true picture of what communism would actually provide you for, you are living in a lap of luxury right now. You have no freaking clue in comparison to what that would actually look like on a day-to-day -day basis. The, the truth behind that is gonna slap you in the face. Well, yes, most people, most people in the United States don't know what true world poverty is like. Yes, we have people who are in poverty in this country, we do. And, and yes, we do have a system of capitalism and most people on the left will say, well, it's capitalism that has caused people to live in poverty in this country. But capitalism and studies and, you know, just a study of, of economics has shown that, that capitalism itself has contributed to the greatest expansion of wealth for all of humanity. Um, and while yes, there are people who get more rich than others, even the poor are richer than even our poor here in the United States. And I'm not talking about the outliers. I'm not talking about the people who are legitimately homeless. That is another issue that is a terrible thing in the United States. But the vast number of people that, that qualify as being below the poverty line or right at the poverty line, most of those people are far and away much more wealthier than any other person on the face of the planet. Most people in the United States who are poor have no idea what true poor really is. Anyway, I think we've... Uh, I think we've kind of talked this one through. I think we're, I think we're pretty much done here. Do you have any parting words or no? Um, uh, you know, I believe the idea of conservatism has been tied so much to the right that it, I, I don't think anybody who sees themselves on the left is going to be able to truly understand or appreciate what um, we were talking about a little bit in regards to a governing judicial um, or even congressional branch.
But I, I think if you try to set aside your political leanings to a point and look at it honestly from a basis of values and principles like what we're trying to express, I hope you can see that that overstepping the government's bounds into dictation of your day-to-day life is a it, – it's really overstepping the, the, where they're supposed to be bound to. And that, that's what, what I think we're both trying to really talk about when we say a conservative-minded um, government um, in that regard. So I, I hope that that actually came across. And if it didn't, apologies, but that's, that's where I think both of us were trying to do with that. So, um, and in a communist or socialist state, there is no such thing as a conservative-minded government. It is totalitarian in its nature. So that's the the two opposing ideas. It's not a a political leaning in the sense of Republican-Democrat or a two-party system. It it really is a different mindset into its control over your daily life. So, Well, good stuff. Um, We're going to be putting together our next show over the next couple of days. Um, I hope you kind of Maybe we talked about some interesting things for you. Maybe we, maybe we haven't, if you're listening. Um, give us a shout out. As always, you can find all of our stuff over at fusionunderground.net, also on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash azfusionunderground. You can find us on Twitter at, at FU Brothers, and you can send us hate mail. Contact at fusionunderground.net for the wonderful Jason Moret. I'm Manuel Ramirez, and you've been listening to the Fusion Underground. Thanks, everybody. Have a good night.